Hi, welcome to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations for the Free Russia Foundation. Uh, this week, my guest is Don Jensen. He is the Director of Russia at the U.S. Institute for Peace. He's also a former U.S. Embassy diplomat and a longtime colleague and friend. And I couldn't think of somebody better to have on to talk about the latest escalation or buildup of Russian military personnel and infrastructure at the, well, I, I would call it the Russian-Ukrainian border, but that's a rather fungible <laughs> phenomenon these days. Uh, and I wanted to pick Don's brain about what this all means. Um, there's been a lot of analysis in the press and in the think tank community about does this mean that Putin is going to invade again, or is this some intimidation exercise? What are the Ukrainians thinking and what will they have to do ultimately if there is another kind of uptick in the undeclared dirty war in Donbass? Uh, Don, it's great to have you on. And I envisage this conversation as one that you and I have on a weekly basis, except just recorded for posterity. So <laughs> feel free. Exactly, exactly. Feel free to have, make it a reason if love the so. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, Michael. Uh, this has really been the the uh, conversation of the of the week uh, around Washington, which is both uh, not always enlightening, but sometimes it is. And you know, the conversation has focused on a couple of key issues. You know, why now uh, will Putin? What's Russia the Kremlin's motivations? Will he invade Ukraine? And third, what uh, is going the U.S. going to do about it? U.S. and maybe its allies. And I thought maybe we'd start by just going through those those questions. Please, yeah. About each one. First of all, yes, this is the one, I should, I think Saki said, that, Press Secretary Saki, this is the biggest Russian buildup in several years. Yes, it is. It's about 20,000 troops, uh, as far as I can tell. This is not the biggest Russian buildup since 2014, when the war was going on. That was at 40,000 people. And what the Russians did then, and presumably might do now if they moved, is they have a combination of uh, Spetsnaz, regular army, logistics, and they tend to probe, move around. These units, to some extent, have been fungible. They look for weaknesses and then try to exert not only militarily, but I have to say, and some people don't like this word, hybrid pressure on Ukraine and the West. As everybody's been saying, the buildup is quite alarming. I think there's something to be said for the fact that if the buildup is so obvious, perhaps they're not going to do anything and maybe uh -huh. moving more for intimidation than anything else. So uh, my view right now, Michael, would be that, that this is primarily to put pressure on Biden, to test Biden, second, to test Zelensky, who has been tougher on the uh, Moscow since uh, Biden came into power. Hour, perhaps not coincidentally. Uh, third, it's, uh, and people don't talk about this this week, it's to test our European allies as well. Kron uh, continue to, and they generally take Ukraine's point of view, but not always. And they do things like leave Ukraine out of trilateral talks that raise questions about just what it is yeah. they have on their mind. And then finally, I think very clearly, Putin is trying to mobilize his so-called patriotic base. And that was a huge factor in 2014 in boosting Putin's popularity ratings, which had fallen quite a lot, you might recall, since the after the demonstrations in 2012 when he came back. That boosted Putin's prospects then by every account, every poll I see, all the hearsay I see, that is not likely to work 
anywhere near as much as it did last time. Like the country has more problems than it had then. And although, as you know, the Duma elections are this fall, I'm not sure that this is going to help Putin all that much, even this kind of rattling of sabers. The Russian uh, popular mind is largely on other things these days. Right. And, you know, one of the things that gets lost in this debate or this conversation, um, I was recently doing a research project on sort of the Black Sea region and Russia's military buildup in Crimea, which has been proceeding apace since 2014. The Ukrainian Defense Ministry provided me with their own statistics about the number of uh, regular military personnel, tanks, uh, aircraft, both fixed wing and rotary caliber uh, cruise missiles, and then just sort of the Black Sea fleets, um, kind of the, the number of warships. That, and, you know, they anticipate, for instance, a manifold increase in all of the above by 2025. So that, that is not contingent on any kind of development geopolitically um, or, you know, with respect to internal politics in Ukraine or even domestic Russia policy. So it, it seems that as though, you know, what makes this slightly alarming and provocative is, you know, you've seen some of the videos of military personnel removing their insignia, you know, kind of hearkening back to the, the days of little green men. I mean, you mentioned this, this hybrid war model. Hybrid war has unfortunately become a bit of a cliche, but there's no other way. Let's call it multidimensional. Multidimensional, sure. And yeah, your points are well taken. I mean, what do you what do you also make? I, I saw the Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman say that you know if if Ukraine were to join NATO, there's been a lot of talk in Kiev about well, this is this is an inevitable thing. We must do this now. We must join NATO to fortify and protect the part of Ukraine that's not occupied by Russian forces. And of course, the, the Moscow's response to this is well, if you do that, we can we will consider that almost tantamount to an act of war. We will have to weigh our options in terms of whether or not to intervene militarily. You know, even though, of course, they have intervened militarily, they just don't acknowledge it. This is the problem, isn't it? It's, it's always a, a kind of guessing game. Is it well, what what will trigger Putin today or what will trigger him tomorrow? And and perhaps it's it's actually nothing. It's it's you know, why not, right? Exactly, exactly. He unnerves analysts and, and other leaders because, as you know, he's probably the biggest gambler yeah. out there and taker. And second, I, I think a strong case can be made that he's missed missed some calls in the, fact, the past six years, primarily by invading Ukraine to begin with, which has pushed Ukraine massively toward the West, not only in uh, on the NATO issue, but also in the European Union yeah. issue. And you look at the polls has created, uh, and you and I have talked about this many times, he's created a, a Ukrainian national sensibility identity, which has really founded primarily on Russia being the enemy, uh, especially on NA- the NATO question where only a minority of Ukrainians, even if they favored EU membership before, now both major- majority favors both EU and NATO membership. The problem is, is of course, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen for a lot of reasons. It's not going to happen, including the fact that the Germans and French don't want another problem right. with a NATO expansion to NATO. That having been said, I think a, a determined U.S. administration could do a lot of things to tighten the uh, military relationship. We've talked; they've talked this about making it a we're a non-allied, non-NATO partner. Uh, we about military aid. I think. Below the radar in large part in the past few years, Ukraine has become not only a key military partner for the United States, 
not just the javelins, but in training and everything else, but also uh, uh, cooperated with us militarily in a number of areas. The military has strengths that we can profit from. And uh, second, I would say that I think people underestimate the quality of uh, Ukrainians armed forces. It's certainly no match for Russia, but and, but, and it's certainly the Russian claims this week that they're preparing an attack on Donbass are ridiculous. But you, unlike, say, April, May 2014, where the Ukrainian military was in disarray, they will put up a fight. And when you're defending your homeland, you have an advantage. And I don't think, despite the reckless nature of Putin sometime, they're going to try this on a massive way. They, it may well be like a Saakashvili situation in, with Georgia that the Ukrainians miscalculate, but I don't think that will happen. This is primarily A for show, A, B to be the test that I mentioned of the, the West, and C, I think the odds of, Ukraine, of Russia doing something lower, a little bit more under the radar, like the the water issue in Mariupol and Odessa, for example, the, or uh, landing paratroopers in the east and calling them peacekeepers, and daring Macron and Merkel to push back. That is much more likely, I think. And, you know, the last time I was in Kiev, which was just weeks before the, the pandemic hit and we went into lockdown mode, there, there were two observations. One, the quality of, I mean, certainly Ukrainian military intelligence, which has had a real tri trial by fire in the last seven, eight years, the the, the sort of savvy and uh, sophistication of their methods. I mean, these guys have become the real masters of understanding, certainly GRU, Russia's military intelligence service, and their kind of ways of clandestine and not so clandestine warfare. Um, but also the other thing that struck me was the, the normalization, and I use this word sort of with an asterisk, the normalization of Ukraine outside of the context of victimhood, outside of the context of being occupied and invaded by a hostile neighbor. So in other words, you've been there even more times than I have. I mean, you know, the, the, the proliferation of shops and commerce and kind of get, getting on with daily life without this sort of permanent war footing in a way has been positive because they see the country now as we have to move forward, we have to sort of advance regardless of Russia's intentions here. Uh, and look, you know, we, we look to the West, we, we, we tilt that way, we have to become more westernized in our behavior. Now, this has been met with some mixed results and at the level of, let's say, you know, cleaning up government corruption, I mean, which was Zelensky's so it's a raison d'etre. I mean, that's what catapulted him to the presidency, right? Being the anti, the anti-Ukrainian politician. And, you know, I don't see the United States. I mean, you know, the Biden administration, as far as I can tell, you live in the district of confusion. So perhaps you have a better handle on this than I, but they haven't really prioritized Ukraine. This is not, doesn't seem to dominate, again, with the exception of this military buildup at the border. We're not hearing a lot about, you know, there was this, this call that Biden had with Zelensky. And, you know, the, of course, there was a reaffirmation of America's commitment as, to Ukraine as an ally and so on. But it doesn't seem to occupy a very, you know, high level portfolio in this administration. Uh, perhaps that's understandable given the more domestic, urgent domestic. Yeah, interesting point you make, Michael. I would not say that. Yeah. I would say that they're still filling out positions, they're still, you know, doing policy reviews, they're still doing a lot of the, the, the initial stuff that new administrations, new administrations always do and say. So I think they're on the right side. I think they're going to be 
push back. Definitely will push back. Uh, just taking time. And I think that's one reason why Putin is trying to test Biden right now. I, I think that yeah. it's not confusion so much as they're only partly in place. And when you get some of the people who are appear to be destined for government uh, prominent positions in the administration, I think you're going to see a very, a very, very robust pushback from, from the Biden people. Uh, you make an interesting comment about the society in Ukraine, and I very much agree with you. The NGO, you know, I watch a lot of Russian and Ukrainian TV, and uh, the NGO society, even when they're furious at Zelensky, is, is very flourishing, very vibrant. You don't see that at all in the east, next, the big neighbor, the big neighbor next door. And the other thing I would say is that uh, you work with Central and Eastern European diplomats, especially in those countries who are in NATO, you see a, a consciousness of Ukraine as a Eastern Central European country in a way you never used to. Yeah. They, they, the most thoughtful Poles or Estonians or Slovak officials don't think of it as a province of Russia at all. It may be difficult to help, or maybe they don't feel it's worth it, usually the first. But, uh, but I think that's a, a way, there's a different perception about what Ukraine is. And I think they see the struggle, they see the civil society and the changes that you mentioned. And I think that's a healthy, healthy thing. These people, meaning those in Ukraine, don't have that superpower sense of exceptionalism that Putin criticizes us for having, the U.S. for having. Ukraine wants to be a normal country. And despite what everybody says, it had made a, uh, a lot of progress. We all know the problems very, very well. We talk about them, about them every day. But I think, uh, as you and I talk about often, there is a uh, residual sympathy with Moscow as, as a great power needing its sphere of influence in some quarters of the talking head group. And, and second, there's a lack of familiarity with what has happened in Ukraine, how, how uh, many, many changes there have been, and how it really has always been kind of a separate cultural entity on its own right. Yeah. It was just smothered under Soviet rule, and now it's coming back. Yeah. And I mean, I suppose, you know, unlike, say, Belarus, which went out of its way, partly out of conviction, no doubt, but probably also pragmatically to emphasize that their protest movement or their rebellion at, at the in the face of a stolen election was not waged on behalf of a pro-Western agenda. It was simply give us our due, right? They weren't tilting yeah, yeah. westward or eastward. And that was very carefully kind of messaged. Excellent point. Uh, uh, by the, the opposition. And, you know, yet, and everyone at the time was saying, well, how come, where is the European solidarity with Belarus? I mean, you had um, the, the Lithuanian foreign minister, Linus Linkovicius, who was outspoken about that crisis and very few else, maybe a few Polish government officials, but where was Germany? Where was France? But you're saying that they see Ukraine as, as a kind of emerging European state in a way. Yeah, exactly. And normal to your use. Uh, use your words. One of the problems in this issue of perceptions of Ukraine and Belarus, which I'm glad you brought up, is that there's sort of a, an empathy almost immediately, immediately from us in Washington for the Belarus opposition or for Navalny, for the Ukrainian democratic movement. And I think we have to be very careful, and I have that same sympathy, but we have to be very careful about 
the opposite when we look at opposition forces in these countries ukraine's opposition is overwhelmingly yes a truly democratic opposition and they've had they were a democracy flawed as it might be they've had several freely elected changes of, of power but belarus for the reason you mentioned the opposition in in russia around navalny these are not entirely democratic forces a mix of things and it's yet we get to see what what will emerge with navalny in particular you know there's some questions a lot of people have about statements he's made in the past about crimea and other things well yeah i was going to i wanted to talk about navalny and his uh, deterioration in russian penal colony i mean he he seems to be being murdered quite slowly now. and i you know, i want to repeat that i'm not it's not that i don't condemn putin for what he's done no no, no it's a fair point and it, plenty of other people have made it but we need to look at navalny and we need to look at the opposition and the potential for change in a, a realistic way in ukraine in particular it's much further down the road yeah. than russia Belarus. But then again, you know, and, and this is something I've asked to coin a phrase, Navalny watchers, um, like Yevgeny Albats, who was on the show a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. You know, how much of, of what you and I would, would see Navalny saying as, as being controversial, how much of that is also a political calculation, right? Because he has to appeal or, or try to cultivate a domestic base of his own. And he's simply not going to do that sounding like a Western liberal Democrat. Right. And whether it's, you know, the kind of nationalist rhetoric and the frankly, the xenophobic racist rhetoric that that he that he was trafficking in 10 years ago, which he's thankfully abandoned, if not outwardly repudiated or indeed, you know, what would I do as president of Russia with respect to Ukraine? Would I give Crimea back? And he seems to be arguing no. I mean, there was a, a bit of a minor kerfuffle on social media when, you know, his campaign put out their kind of election mapping mechanism or whatever. And Crimea was uh, treated as sovereign Russian territory. So a lot of Ukrainians I know, I'm sure you know even more, are quite down on and suspicious of Navalny for that reason. But again, you know, you play that logic from the other side. What did she say? What did Albert say to answer? Hey, what position on Navalny did she take when you asked her? She no, she says, look, she, she's known him since, what, 2004 ish. And, you know, she understood that that he was trying to, at, you know, as you know, at the time, the, the most outspoken and tolerated form of opposition to the Kremlin rule was the kind of ultra nationalists, in some cases, frankly, just skinheads. So he would participate in the Russian marches, but he would not do so because he was ideologically aligned with fascists or neo-Nazis. He was trying to reach them in a way and say, look, if you have a real political grievance with this current country and system, let me disabuse you of what you think is, is, is the problem. And let me tell you what the real problem is. And, you know, fundamentally, Albatz's argument is Navalny is, is obsessed with corruption. I mean, that's his whole kit and caboodle, really, and his politics derives therefrom. I mean, in a way, he's more like a, a Ralph Nader figure. Yeah, interesting comparison. Yeah. And, and look, whether or not that's, that's too optimistic a gloss or I, I go back and forth myself. I mean, to my mind, though, in a way, it almost doesn't matter. I mean, look how Solzhenitsyn ended up. I mean, pro-Putin a great Russian chauvinist, rather sad decline politically for somebody who certainly liberals in the West had heralded and rightly so as a great dissident and a great historian of his own country. Um, what matters is what's happening to him now. Attempted murder through the use of a we- weapon of mass destruction, being stalked all over his country for three years, and now this, this slow motion murder in a penal colony where he's also being humiliated. I mean, you saw that that farce with Maria Butina, uh, you know, for RT interviewing yeah, that was horrible. We all 
condemn what, what's going on with him. I have two other points on this topic, very interesting topic. One is a historical lesson. I don't want to overestimate the comparison. But in the early 90s, when I was starting out in the government, uh, you know, we sort of assumed that the, the Yeltsin anti-Soviet movement that resulted in the fall of the Soyuz and resulted in Yeltsin's leading the country was a democratic movement. And I think looking back, that was one of our fundamental miscalculations about what happened. And that led us to construct a number of policies based on a reality that was not there. So for me, thinking back about that and the differences between then and now, I'm a, I, I always look at the Russian opposition with both support and principle, but caution and not oversimplifying what they stand for and how they see, see Russia. Yeah, what I'm saying is that, is that uh, the Yeltsin led a coalition of anti-Soviet elements, some of which were not at all democratic. We misread that and I think made some policies based on those false, those misleadings that I think led to trouble down the road afterward, as we've seen now, the victimization of Russia, that kind of thing. Mm. So on on your first point, before I ask you what the policy mistakes that we made were based on this misapprehension of what the, you know, kind of anti-Soviet movement was, I wanted to know, I was having a conversation with a a mutual friend of ours the other day who pointed out realism as a policy doctrine, right? I mean, the people who were in charge of stewarding this transition, this post-Soviet transition, by and large were foreign policy realists who their entire worldview was premised on the fact that what had just taken place was probably not going to take place, right? We should get, you know, wipe the stars from our eyes. I wouldn't call the majority foreign policy realists, but go ahead. They're very interesting points. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, like the the John Barely types. I mean, certainly George Bush the first. I wouldn't consider him to be um, a liberal romantic, much much less a, a neoconservative. But the the point that this person, my interlocutor, was making was actually that transitional period was handled quite well and quite ably by American policymakers and American statesmen. But you, you seem to be critical. So tell me what we did wrong. Yeah, I will. First of all, I don't like the. I don't. I'm not a realist myself, and I find realist analysis something I almost always disagree with. I think we handled the we being the U.S. administration, Bush one and Clinton handled the nuclear insecurity issues very well. NATO expansion, the denuclearization of the former USSR. I think those were handled very well, and the related issues like stockpile of nuclear materials. The problem was that was not a problem of political realism. The problem was the domestic. Remember, this was 1989, 1991, uh, where Fukuyama had written the end of history. We these transitions to more democratic pluralist states would be almost automatic. Shock therapy, free market economics, all those kinds of things, which didn't happen. And it didn't happen for a number of reasons, one of which is that we misunderstood I think the patrimonial corrupt nature of Russian society. Right. Uh, so it didn't happen for a lot of reasons, but that was not because people were realists. It was because we thought some of these policies with our nurturing were almost automatically going to be effective. When our support became less tenable in the mid to late 90s, people started to blame the US for the failure of these policies. When in fact, Nobody in the Washington that I knew of tried to undermine Russia. They were just bad policies and reacted. We misread what was going on and reacted too late. The answer to the question I always get in in response, Michael, is always, well, for people you and I know, well, what would you have done, Don? And that's not a good question. 
because these are from people who defend shock therapy or the way privatization was held out. But clearly by 93 and 94, when the choice was between an authoritarian Russian polity presidency under Yeltsin and giving up reforms, which are increasingly unpopular, we picked Yeltsin, picked pushing through the reforms, even though there was diminished Russian support, popular support for them. The paradoxes, too, of, of that period. I mean, if you read, uh, Christia Friedland wrote a, a great book based on her reporting for, I think it was the FT back in the early 90s. Christia Friedland now, of course, foreign minister of Canada and a yeah. member of the esteemed Ukrainian diaspora up north. Her book was called uh, The Sale of the Century, right? Which was about the privatization, all that. And, you know, I mean, all of those chapters on the rise of red directors, all that had taken place really was, you know, giving the same kind of corrupt new classes that had been built up through totalitarianism. Exactly, exactly. Now giving them private enterprise that had belonged yeah. to the state, saying run it essentially in the same way you were running it before, only now you get to keep the money, right? Yeah. Uh, it wasn't a real proper transition to market cap. I mean, market capitalism doesn't spring up overnight. You and I both are students and admirers of Robert Conquest, who emphasizes the so-called law and liberty tradition. These things cannot be imposed from above. And in fact, I, I would argue certainly the folly of American foreign policy in the last 25, 30 years has been that kind of utopian thinking, whether it's in the Middle East or, you know, elsewhere. So yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. But then, you know, the, the question is, so what is the most feasible and pragmatic position to take that also doesn't forsake American values, shall we say, even though that's a very, I suppose, loaded or to take today. pregnant to take phrase. Today. Yeah. With respect to Russia and with respect to uh, what else should we talk about? I mean, Ukraine, uh, NATO expansion. Oh, yeah. I, want to, I wanted to bring this discussion also back back to Ukraine in a second. But, oh, I'm very much in favor of democracy promotion. It's just a value standing for something, standing for values. I think that makes our case in a way that uh, you don't have to use troops or any other right. forceful methods. Uh, we, I had a friend at RFERL who grew up in Bulgaria. He told me that uh, he didn't pay that much attention to the American, American public line from VOA and RFE, but he would go to the movies every Friday night in Sofia and he would watch an American Hollywood movie. And when they would get food out of the refrigerator and, and he would open the door, there was full of food. He said, and they didn't comment on it. And he said, that to me sold me on the American American dream. The difficulty though now is, you, I mean, and, and this is why I've, I've argued, I think unpopularly and, and perhaps counterintuitively that combating Putinism such as it is, or however one chooses to define it, is actually more difficult in a way than being a communist. Oh, absolutely. Because there is food in the refrigerator for a lot of Russians today, right? They're not waiting in queues. I absolutely for, agree. For toilet paper and basic necessities. So the, the, the argument of scarcity or a lack versus surplus, it doesn't apply anymore. So now you're, you're, you're into other things. No, I agree. I agree. I, I, not that I wanted the scarcity as the argument, Michael. What I meant to say is the, the symbols of value. You know, by the way, the U.S., the popular view of the United States and Europe in Putin's Russia in the last two years, according to the polls, has actually gone up slightly. It's not declining. But when you see what Putin is doing to RFE now, when you see some of the other things, this is something, this is an area where we need to be very vigorous and sticking up for this, this approach. There's nothing wrong with symbolizing or advocating for values as long as you're not forcing it on people. And you're a pioneer on the information war field yourself. And as you know, this value freeness, which you see in the West where 
journalists take Ukraine have to report that Ukrainian says this and the Kremlin says this, even though what the Kremlin says is ridiculous. They think that that is balanced, objective journalism. Right. And, and it just isn't. Right. Offline, I was telling you, uh, you know, this yeah. forbidding marriage between Reuters and TASS has resulted in Reuters now recycling TASS headlines, such as one I saw yesterday or the, the night before, you know, Russia worries Ukraine will commit an act of aggression at the border. So, well, hang on. They, they don't even have access to their border in Donbass because it's controlled by Russian military assets and so-called separatists. So, you know, again, it's this, this attempt to try and be even-handed when there is no need given the past behavior and proven track record of one of the parties. Well, look, look at, and this came up with the paper I was reviewing recently, look how much the Russian narrative about Ukraine has percolated into even Western discussions of what's going on. Oh, absolutely. Civil war, not true. Uh, separatists, they're not separatists. In man, these are Russian, these are brigands financed by the Kremlin, backed up by Russian arms. Uh, Anti-Semitism ran rampant, fascism. Jewish president. They've got a Jewish president in Ukraine, not bad for an anti-Semitic country. Jewish president. And last time I checked, the anti-Semitism level was lower than in many Western European yeah. countries. One more point about Ukraine and Russia, which is to say, on Navalny, people spend a lot of time debating what about Russia after Putin? What will happen? And can Putinism, whatever that is, exist without Putin? And I would argue profoundly agnostic. I just don't know. There's all these other elements in the society that are troubling, even if they're not in power. In Ukraine, I have no doubt that it would continue in a democratic direction, short of a catastrophic you know, war or something like that. So I think the turn that Ukraine has made, and that will continue with all the zigzags, with all the step backwards, and all that kind of thing. And that's a big difference than in Russia, where this kind of thing is, is not as consolidated. Well, but this is also, you know, uh, and I've heard this this argument. I'm mean, not not to say you're using it as a cudgel, but it has been used as a cudgel before by, shall we say, pro Kremlin interests. You know, after Putin, expect even something much much worse, right? It's going to be the rise of the the Zhirinovsky types, the ultra nationalists, or frankly, even barring that, I mean, a guy like Igor Sechin in the driver's seat in Russia is probably a worse set of conditions. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I don't necessarily expect it to be worse. I expect it to be somewhat different. And that's not the same thing. Right. But if Putin weren't there, I suspect there would be a, uh, a greater willingness to, to get a deal on Ukraine than there is now. I expect that. I do not expect Russia to solve its patrimonial corruption problem anytime soon. I don't expect quick progress into having the rule of law or strengthening democratic institutions. That takes takes a long time. We just have to see. I'm not sure I even expect a change in Russia's sort of imperial strategic culture, which is it's surrounded by enemies and that kind of thing. Putin always complains about the U.S. seeing itself as an exceptional nation, but Russia does at least as much. And that's a problem. Yeah. And, you know, the idea, though, that, that NATO after the Cold War was going to be this inherently hostile force to Russia. I mean, you know, there was that moment, what was it, in 2004, perhaps a little bit later, where Putin essentially asked the Bush administration, so how do we get part of this NATO action? How do we join? And they said, well, you, you go through the, the protocols that every other member state does. You have to Exactly. And he said, no, no, we want to be at the head of the line. We're Russia. Come on. Just yeah, I believe I saw there was a draft Kozarev statement about that that I, I once had a glimpse at. Right. But my point is, if Russia had gone in a different direction, if it had become democratic, if it had become a market 
you know, economy in, in the true sense of the word, not a kleptocracy, right? It could very well be in NATO. It, it had nothing. I mean, I remember the Estonians always love to tell the story of, of Herman Sim, right? Uh, and among the many things that Mr. Sim, he was the one of the, the biggest breaches in NATO history, I think the biggest at the time when he was caught and had been working for first the KGB and then the SVR. Uh, and he was, you know, in the Estonian defense ministry. Uh, but one of the things that his Russian handlers had always tasked him to do is go find the secret NATO war plans or the invasion plans for Russia, how NATO will go to war with Russia. And he said, I, I, you know, I've been doing this for years. There are no plans, <laughs> no plans exactly. to, to invade Russia. This is not an aggressive uh, posture. And they didn't believe it. They just simply didn't believe it. Yeah, they were a relatively productive, let's say productive, member of the NATO-Russia Coordinating Council for 32, 13, 14 years. The victimization thing didn't come up until quite a bit later after the alleged Western sins took place. And, and I love the uses and the abuses of history to now serve Kremlin needs. I don't know if you saw, I think it was a, a, one of the embassy accounts uh, or, or perhaps it was even somebody in the presidential administration was invoking Srebrenica. Yeah. Justification of a prospective Russian invasion of Ukraine. So a, a Serbian atrocity, a genocide against Bosnian Muslims, which the official Russian line has never took place, yeah. is now to be used as justification for a, a hypothetical Russian invasion. Yeah, that yeah, that was the that was the ridiculous MFA talking point of the week. Yeah. Or we might invade, but I did they just said they don't have any troops there. I mean, the whole thing is the whole thing is ridiculous. If I could say a word about the Biden administration, though, for, you know, they, I think, in large part, want to engage on issues of mutual concern and interest. And I think that can be a cliche diplomatically, but I agree with it. It's true. And it's going, I think it will go largely on things like strategic stability and that kind of issue. At the same time, putting aside these other concerns we have about the Putin regime, and that's I think that balance is what they're trying to, to work out now. It's not an easy challenge. There is, there, you know, one, and I favor this, you're trying to erect a fence between agreement and agree to disagree. And that's really a, a tough balance to reach. I highly recommend, if you haven't read it, the Borton, Bortnikoff interview this week, excuse me, the Patrushev interview this week. And the one in Commerson. Yeah, I did see Yeah, it. the one in bilateral relationship, which is a mixture of common sense, we want to work with you, and crazy stuff. And uh, you know, he's been pretty, not infrequently, public on in some interviews the past, let's say, nine months. And he always says this, but as sort of a bellwether of the, I was going to say, forces to the right of Putin, let's just say, of the more nationalistic forces, I find it, found it an extremely interesting interview. It's mixed stuff, which is in many ways hard to sort out for someone who's not in that group around Putin trying to make decisions about this stuff. Because in some ways there was there was cuckoo material in there, and then there was common sense. Very hard to sort. Well, you know, here's where where I get very interested in whatever the relationship between Washington and Moscow will be. You know, we've had Mike Carpenter on the show who categorically will state there will be no reset under a Biden administration, right? Which is a good starting point, I think. Certainly an improvement on previous administrations. But here's what's been reported that's coming down the pike. Obviously, there are going to be sanctions uh, for the solar winds hack, which the full extent of it 
in terms of a data breach, we, we don't know. And I don't even think that cybersecurity experts know since simply because the, the SVR were in the systems for so long and they could have exfiltrated so much information. But also sanctions on for other things, acts of aggression or uh, malign behavior, including this GRU Taliban bounty story from several months ago, which got very complicated because of this story broke in the New York Times. Charlie Savage had the scoop and then reported actually more details kind of filling out some of the, you know, the who and what and where and how bits of it. Uh, and then, you know, counter-reporting suggesting actually this thing is not true or it's overblown. And from what I gather, it was a kind of an internal spat between the DIA or Pentagon assessments and CIA, right? Not They didn't disagree about the evidence. They disagreed about their the interpretation of the evidence, which happens all the time in government. But here's the thing, Don, if and when this administration does issue sanctions for Russia's military intelligence service suborning Islamist insurgents in Afghanistan to murder American and British soldiers in, in the field. That's going to be an A1 story in the New York Times. That's going to be all over cable news. And that, then every American will have been convinced, because it's been certified now by a new White House, that Russia is out to kill Americans. That's going to fundamentally change, perhaps not the government-to-government -government nature of the relationship, but certainly the perception of what Russia is and what America should feasibly be doing in terms of nuclear deproliferation, climate change, uh, counterterrorism cooperation, um, you know, the Iran deal to be or whatever. And also, by the way, maybe there won't be sanctions on that. You know, maybe Biden will decide I can't do anything. I cannot certify that as, as established fact for that very reason. It will upend the bilateral relationship. I mean, you don't walk back, back from we're trying to kill your soldiers in the field in the 21st century. No, you don't. You don't, Michael. But I think that the, a lot of these issues you mentioned do not have a public constituency strong enough to change what the Biden people may or may not want to do. Certainly what you described will be a strong negative. But I think that people tend to segment the issues to separate, separate them to some extent. And they will not like that. The views of Russia are pretty negative anyway. But if you talk about arms control or strategic stability or cooperation on terrorism or maybe doing something to help that horrible situation in Syria. I think people, the public, there'll be enough public support for the Biden administration on this to allow the, the government to do, to do, to make go forward. Can I make a related point, which I think is really important, which is that, you know, America has a lot of challenges. China, people talk about 24 seven, Russia, Iran, and so forth. I guess what I worry about, and I've seen no evidence of it so far, but I do worry about it, if push comes to shove, do some people in the foreign policy elites favor force focusing on China or an Iran deal or something else more than they figure, feel backing Ukraine? In other words, there are varieties of support among people about these issues. And I think Russia could well say, OK, let us do A in exchange for your help on Iran. Do you see my point? Right. There's not a uniformly deep support for Ukraine or, frankly, any of these other issues to not offer Russia the temptation to try to make a deal in some way. There was a rumor this week, and I don't think it's true, but it was a rumor that the Germans uh, issued their tough statement on Ukraine in exchange for a winking about Nord Stream 2. And so there's all these kind of trade-offs one could make. I'm not saying it was made here that really complicate what we're talking about if it's expressed, expressed as a simple 
cooperation where you can, disagree where you can't. It's not as easy as that. But that is what they're trying to figure out, I'm sure, in the White House. And we'll see what comes down the road. I usually agree with Mike Carpenter. So thank you for... <laughs> yeah, we have to have him back on when his uh, whatever his role in government is going to be is announced. Yeah, I've not talked yeah. to him. Well, look, Don, uh, always a pleasure. Thank you. We should have you back for sure. Um, Anytime. Whether, whether Russia reinvades Ukraine or not, <laughs> to talk about... Yeah, I've got to write a paper about it this weekend so uh, okay so it's fresh in the brain that's good yeah you've helped me focus the mind all right well good to know that i i seldom help anyone focus on anything these days so <laughs> except my kid focusing on netflix cartoons well that's a that's a wonderful distraction. thanks mike good to see you again mike. yeah of course don jensen uh, the director of russia at the u.s institute for peace and a former embassy diplomat you've been listening to foreign office uh thanks very much and we'll see you next week